He loped along with uncanny speed. The outlaw was outrunning the chariot. Maybe it was the adrenaline rush. Maybe he was just getting rid of some nervous energy. Nah, Elijah thought. This must be God's doing. I'm not this fast. Up until this moment, half the nation thought he was just crazy. A crazy old prophet. And frankly, Elijah kind of liked it that way. He didn't mind being God's outlaw. But then all of that was about to change because of what God did. Rain was coming. Showers, a downpour. He could feel it in his bones. Water was about to fall from heaven following the fire before. And maybe Elijah was praying as he ran. Because Elijah was always praying. He, he had spent the last hour or so just sticking his head down between his knees and praying, 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 and sending his servant out to the edge of Mount Carmel to look out over the ocean to see if there might be anything on the horizon. Seven times he went out and back in, seven times, seven times, and then finally, on the seventh time, he comes back and says, Master, there's a cloud the size of a fist on the horizon. You see, they hadn't seen anything like that in three years. And so Elijah comes back down off of Carmel, and he, he runs and runs and runs. He, he takes his, his coat up between his legs and tucks it into his belt, and boy, did he run. He ran ahead of the king's chariot. And as he ran, he thought about the fact that he had actually felt a twinge of compassion for the nasty old evil king, the evil genius himself. In fact, he had reached out in kindness and said, hey, you better go. You better get going before the water gets too high and the mud messes up the wheels of your uh, chariot. And oh, by the way, have something to eat and drink because you must be famished. You see, Ahab, that old king, had been whooped based on a prayer of three simple words, God, send fire. And then God had done it. And what was weird is when, when Elijah reached out with that bit of compassion, to everybody's surprise, Ahab got in his chariot and he did it. Because you see, he just seemed so small at that point. It was sort of like king of what? He didn't even fight against the legal uh, ramifications or the, the action of fulfilling the legal law of carrying out the sentence on the lying, cheating priests of Baal. But now, as they get close to the summer residence in the valley floor of the Jezreel Valley, Elijah stops. Ahab just keeps flying on by in his chariot, but they both saw it. There was a light coming out of the queen's, corner, queen's quarters in the corner of the building. It was burning bright, but that must not have been the only thing that was burning in there. And Ahab, poor Ahab, he was 
given this gift of grace from the prophet of the Lord, and he was writing along with that in his hand, and yet he was about to have a conversation in the devil's bedroom. That's where we find Elijah in the events of Elijah's life that we're finding out are so apropos and so relevant to us in our daytime, in our time, in our cultural moment that we live in. We, we uh, have come to the point where he's been up in, on Mount Carmel and, and had this showdown between the priest of Baal and God, and God came through and, and, and did this wondrous thing, and now it seemed like uh, Elijah would be on the top of the world, at least for a moment. And, and we come to a story in 1 Kings 19, you can turn there if you've got your Bible, because you're going to want to see this. In fact, you're going to want to go back and read it again, because it is so apropos to this moment, but it's also pivotal in the story of salvation in the entire Bible. It's one of my favorites, but that doesn't matter. What matters is it's pivotal to a lot of stuff that goes on. What else? I, there's another thing about it that I want us to think about. I want to show you kind of a different way of looking at it that there might be a different uh, you know, perspective than you might have heard before. I, I remember that my perspective has changed. I actually used to preach this passage in a different way than I preach it now. And so uh, let me ask you to just start two verses back in, in ver uh, chapter 18, beginning at verse 45, and show you what I mean. It says, meanwhile, the sky became dark with clouds and the wind came up and there was a heavy shower and then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he belted his cloak, which means he, if you ever heard the old King James girded his loins, it means he grabbed his coat between his legs and tucked it into his belt so he could run. And he belt, belted his cloak around his waist and outran Ahab to Jezreel. You see, the first thing you got to understand here is that um, there's a little bit of kindness here. When Ahab previous to this says, hey, go get something to eat. He's actually reaching out, and, and, and it, the social custom of the day is when you invited somebody to eat and drink, especially in the midst of a famine, you were, you were doing something kind for them. And the and, and interesting thing is, is that uh, it's equally likely that Elijah's uh, position here, uh, ahead of the chariot, he's outrunning the chariot. Think of that, outrunning the horses. His his his, uh, his ex being out there in front wasn't sort of like, hey, I'm faster than the king. No, it was more to the effect of, hey, here comes the king. Let's, let's give some honor. Here comes the king. That's kind of how it was as viewed when there were servants out in front of the chariot as it rolled. So there's all this reason why we should think that, that uh, Elijah was offering him sort of an olive, olive branch. And th this seems important to us right now in this cultural moment, okay? Because no matter what happens in our culture in the future for Christians and God followers, the fact of the matter is, things may be tough, but because we follow the one who's greater than the one who is in the world, we're going to see some victories. We're going to see some uh, you know, wins, if you will, because God's going to win. Jesus is going to win. And the reality is, is if you're a follower of that one, you're going to win some. So this, this sort of olive branch kind of gracious, not doing the I told you so, I predicted that Jesus was going to smash you kind of stuff, avoiding that and rather offering grace and kindness 
is something we Christians in this moment should remember right now in case some of that happens in the future. Because in turbulent times, that's what uh, we, we, uh, God means for us to think about. In troubled times, Jesus asks his people to be kind and gracious in his victories. You see, that's the reality of, of what we see here. And, and, and this is even more important, right? Because we're living in a culture of outrage. We're living in a culture of hurt feelings, of uh, intolerance, and stick them in their place, aren't we? I mean, it's flying all around. That's what, you know, has things in a turmoil sometimes. You know, we've, we've somehow, as a culture, become less mature than we were even just five years ago and how we treat one another even when we're on opposing sides. I mean, it, it's about Christians refusing to play the argument game or the prediction game or the, you know, Jesus is going to get you game. And, and rather respond in kindness and grace. And I'm not saying we act like losers. I'm just simply saying that we follow Proverbs 15.1, which says the, that uh, you know, a, a gentle answer, a kind answer, a gracious answer, turns away wrath. That's the answer that God will fill, not with weakness, but with his power. God will fill to change lives and to change the world and even the country and the culture and to renew it and make things new. That's what he does. That's what he's up to. Our job is to live for him and to be in that position. See, God has vindicated Elijah here, and he's not used to being in this position. It's, it's easier for prophets in the Old Testament, and I'm suspicious. I don't have the full theology on this. I'm just going to let it fly here for a second. But I'm suspicious that it's easier for Christians to be in the minority position when it comes to the power structures of the culture. Because the temptations are too great when you're in the power structures of the culture. So it's, the underdog position seems to be well-suited for Christians because that's when God makes his move. So moving forward, we ought to remember that. We ought to put some hope in that. I think it's what Jesus meant when he says, I didn't come to be served but to serve, and oh, by the way, I want you to serve too. I think that's what, we, what we're supposed to understand from this. But the plot thickens real quick. As I, Elijah is on the top of the world, look what happens. Doesn't this seem to be the way it always goes? Verse 1, now Ahab told Jezebel uh-oh, everything that Elijah had done and he, how he was, uh, had killed the prophets with the sword, prophets of Baal. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying what was traditionally said when you really hated somebody, so may the gods, small g, do to me, and more so, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like the life of one of them. And he was afraid and got up and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So is Elijah running from one angry woman? I mean, some of us may have experiences where that's happened. I don't know. But is that really what's going on here? Was he, if you look in verse 3 where it says afraid, all of your translations probably do. But I'm going to make a case for the, that that's not the right word to translate. And it's not because I, don't, don't worry, I, I do have some backing on this. 
There is a growing number of scholars and professors and whatnot that are saying this, okay? But, but the translators are following the, the most manuscripts, okay? The most, the most copies of First Kings that we have says it's uh, a one Hebrew word that is, I'm going to just say it here because it sounds kind of cool. It's yar, like a pirate, yar, okay? That's, that's the word, and it means to be afraid. But we have a good number, not, a, not the majority, but a good number of manuscripts that say it should be another word, which is ra'ah, which means to see or to become aware or to, to realize. And a growing number of scholars are saying, you know what? Elijah was not afraid. He was broken. He was broken. But he wasn't like psychotically uh, you know, depressed or something. Because he, he saw something that dry, may have caused him to run, not he was afraid that caused him to run. He was broken, yes. You see, this is important because for ages, including this preacher, preachers have, have, have done this text and said, you know, sort of a, at least for the last hundred of years since psychology has been a thing, we've a, sort of done a psychoanalytical deal on Elijah and said, oh yeah, he's depressed, he's clinically depressed, obviously. The only problem is that that is very dangerous to do the Bible, especially Old Testament prophets. Because we may think that way in the last hundred years or so, and I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying that's not how they thought. And, and, and what about this? It's possible to be broken without being psychotic. Right? And so what is it that he saw? How does, how does this work? What, 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 what's the text really trying to tell us? What's, what's Elijah really showing us by his running uh, away? You see, I, I, uh, I uh, emailed a friend of mine who's getting his PhD. Get this. He's getting his PhD in Hebrew, okay? And he's getting it by writing a thesis on the word ra'ah, to see, and the 800 times it shows up in the Old Testament. How would you like to do a thesis on that? 800 times in the Old Testament and all the little nuances of the word to see. Guy's a brainiac, one of the two smartest people I've ever met. But I wrote him, and I said, hey, do you think it's yahar, yar, or do you think it's ra'ah? He says, oh, it's ra'ah. Here's an article that kind of shows that. Boom, dropped the mic, I was right which is exactly what I just said not to do when you have a victory, right? But <laughs> I couldn't help that. But, you know, we're starting to get the picture there here that, he, that what he saw was, he saw this evil queen and king, and he saw that they were blowing up the country. They were doing exact opposite, and then they were setting themselves up for complete destruction of the country. And now they... Now she wanted to destroy him too. And he just couldn't give her that chance. He just couldn't give that, her, that opportunity to her. You see, you and I are concerned sometimes, and I hope you are a little bit, as we looked at things, and, and it may not be like this. It's not like this to this extent yet, but there are some forces in our country right now that are trying to blow up the country morally, right? And there, there, there's a certain amount of brokenheartedness that that is appropriate, and that's, that's right. His heart was breaking because of the moral chop busting that was going on in the country. And he now was kind of the leader of the other side of it. And more and more people were realizing he wasn't just a crazy old prophet, but it, he really was on God's side. And things were starting to shift, so they were trying to take him out. I mean, there, there's even more evidence in the next part of the text 
with regard to why this would be the case. Look at the beginning of verse four. So he travels to Beersheba uh, in verse three and leaves his servant there. And then verse four, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked himself, or he asked for himself to die and said, enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down, fell asleep under the broom tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him and said to him, arise, eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a round loaf and bread baked on hot coals and pitcher of water. And so he ate and drank and lay down again. But the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too long for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and, his, and he journeyed on the strength of that food, man, this must have been high-protein food, for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb and the mountain of God. And it was basically all carbs, by the way. <laughs> I mean, think of that. It, 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 that's amazing. There must have been something special in that food, 40 days. See, it helps us to watch the map here. And let, me, let me just try to describe this. So Beersheba is on the outskirts, it's on the outskirts of Judah, which is the, the, the empire south of Israel. Remember that split in half. So it's a long ways from the mad woman. Even if somebody had come up and, you know, assassinated him, they wouldn't have given it to, you know, Jezebel, he was outside the, the bounds of that she could get any credit for this at all. But instead of that, he goes further. And not only does he go further, the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself says, hey, I'm with you, go further. Here's what, it, here's what this is like. Imagine Jezebel is in downtown Portland, which is not hard to imagine. Just imagine Jezebel's in downtown Portland and she says, okay, you're in trouble, I'm gonna take you all out. And so you all, you start running. And you go to Eugene. No helicopters, no planes, trains, automobiles. It's just, you're Eugene, you're outside the reach of Jezebel by and large. Why go all the way to Mount Shasta? That's basically what it is. So he goes all the way to the mountain of God, which is Horeb, which is, by the way, Sinai, where Moses got the Ten Commandments, the mountain of God. He's all the way down there. What's God doing? You know what I think? I think God's taking him on a retreat. I think he's, he's, not, he's not trying to make him even more scared. He's saying, hey, you know, let's have a conversation. But let's have it far away, far, far, far away from all this. And I think he's, he's with him. He's taking, taking him on that journey. And he's, he, he's, he's, you know, he wants to die, not because he's afraid, but because he's broken. And he doesn't want her to have any more credit than she's already got. Because he knows what's happening to his country. And he knows what's happening to the people of God. I, I uh, read an article not long ago by an Old Testament professor from Dallas Seminary. He used to teach here at Western Seminary, but the last several decades he's been in Dallas. Uh, he's, his name is Ron Allen. And Ron Allen, uh, in fact, I just met him over at the, not just, I mean, like two or three years ago, I was over when you could actually go studying in Starbucks. I was over there studying. And here, lo and behold, was Ron Allen, and I recognized him from his days at Western, and, and he was in the, over there studying a lot more than me, by the way. But, but anyway... 
he, he takes this text, and here's what he says. I, I just want you to see this. He says, Elijah wanted to die, for he was broken. He did not wish to die at Jezebel's hand, for that would be judged her victory, hence his flight. But south of the proverbial southernmost city of the southern kingdom in the wilderness of Judah, where none would give Jezebel credit for his death. There he begged Yahweh to take his life. But then Yahweh took him even further. He says, I got a better idea. Let's go all the way to Horeb. I want you to see this. And so he travels on the strength of the food that God had given him 40 days and 40 nights. You see, I think... What Elijah is telling us here, in that 40 days and 40 nights, he's he's praying his heart out. Please, God, take me out. That's the only plan. Otherwise, this is going to get all messed up. Everything you did on Mount Carmel is just going to get messed up, and all people can think about is how she killed me. Please, just take me out. That's his plan. It's not a bad plan. He's not, you know, and he's leaving it to God. But what's he doing there? He's praying. I would even say he's projectile praying, if I can put it in a phrase you might know my euphemism there. He's praying his heart out. And in troubled times, that's what we do first. Yes, pray your heart out. Just recognize that God may have a better plan. Just recognize that God knows what's really real. You know, pray what you really think, though. Don't keep that, you know, sometimes we just, we, we hedge our bets with God, and he doesn't, I don't think he wants that. It's sort of like, you know, I, I, I'm not even going to tell you what I think, God, but please tell me what you think. No, he wants to know. He wants to know what your plan is, what you're thinking, and so forth. He just wants to let, he just wants you to let him imply his sovereignty to your plan. I mean, later on, Elijah's going to be very happy, I'm sure, that the Heavenly Father did not do what he is asking him to do. But, God knows higher things, and at the same time, God is the kind of God who wants that kind of relationship with us, and he actually uses our giving him what we really think should happen, and even in a forceful way, he uses that to change our hearts and our lives. It's just, it applies again, my favorite J. Vernon McGee quote, God does things his way in his universe. You may have a better way, but you do not have a universe. And that, I think, is exactly what's going on with Elijah here. I mean, he, God is inviting him into the conversation. And he's hearing Elijah's prayers. He said, good, yeah, we really need to work this out. You see, I think that's the kind of heavenly father we have. We can hurl our hearts at him. I think, I think it is. I think that's why Jesus describes him that way. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We got a whole bunch of stuff we got to tell you about. Right? That's kind of where Elijah is at this point. But look, God sends him this other 200 miles and gives, and he asks Elijah a very caring question. And I didn't really realize the full extent of how caring this is until a couple of years ago. Look at uh, beginning at verse 9. This is the longer part of the, the quote here, but uh, it, it's so gripping, I don't think you'll be lost. Here we go. Then he came there to the cave and spent the night there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of armies, for the sons of Israel have abandoned your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. In other words, everything's going south. And I alone am left 
and they have sought to take my life. So he said, that is God said, Yahweh said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and powerful wind was tearing out the mountains and the breaking the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of armies, for the sons of Israel have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they have sought to take my life. You see, what I think what's happening here is rather than a reproof or you know, telling Elijah to knock it off, I think God's giving him a double invitation to really make sure he gets it all out of his heart. I think that's what's going on there. Because God shows up in this, this whisper thing, this whisper of still small voice, it's called. You know, did you notice how God isn't in the flashbang? He's not in the signs and wonders. He's not in the fire and the earthquake and the wind. That doesn't mean God never works that way. We know from all the scripture, including the book of Acts, that he does work that way sometimes. And maybe you can think of some time in your life when God did this pizzazzy thing like you just couldn't miss it. But that's even rare in the Bible. What God most often talks to us, he'd rather converse to us in his normal voice, you know, a voice that we can handle that doesn't, imagine if God did the signs and wonders and the, the earthquake and the crash and the fire every single day. We wouldn't know whether we were coming and going. Well, we'd be blown away one day, we're blown away the next day, blown, right? It would just on and on. But no, he'd rather have a real relationship with us in, in the way that we have a relationship with each other. So I'm not saying that it's not good to have and pray for signs and wonders and God to do healings and all that. I'm pray- I think it is. It's right and it's good. But what's even better is that in the context of those prayers, remember to have the conversation and listen for the still small voice of God and to cut ourselves some slack. When God asks us to tell the truth about what we're really feeling, tell it. Pour your heart out. But then recognize in troubled times that you got to realize that prayer is listening for God. It's not just telling God stuff. And you know what? Going forward into the future of our society and our culture, that is going to be critical for Christians, to learn how to be still long enough to listen. Sure, pour out your heart. But it takes practice to learn how to listen. You see, the reason why this is so important is because we need our insides changed. We need our minds changed. We need our hearts changed. We need our worldview changed. And we can't do that on our own. We can't do that just by uh, muscle of, of our own mind and hearts and thoughts. We need the Holy Spirit of God to reach inside us in those quiet moments and reshape us so that we can move forward and reshape this and reshape that. That's why God wants you to pour out what you really think and say, I hear what you're saying, but I got a little bit of different take on that. You need to reshape this a bit, Dwayne. Dial back your outrage just a bit. <laughs> and let me reshape that because I've got something I want to do in this time, in this place, in you. 
Tim Keller, that book I, I mentioned last week called The Counterfeit God, says this really well. Look at this. Idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. This cannot be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try to live differently. You see? Turning from idols is not less than those two things, but it is also far more. Quote, setting the mind and heart on things above, unquote, where, quote, your life is hid in Christ, uh, with Christ in God, Colossians 1, or 3, 1 to 3, you might want to look that up, means appreciation, rejoicing, resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails joyful worship, a sense of God's reality and prayer. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive to your heart than your idol. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to show us how Jesus is more attractive to live our lives for. And and more beautiful in our imagination. Begin to imagine just a little bit about who he really is. That's why we have to learn how to listen. Because that's where that happens. When we listen to him, our imaginations are enlivened. our, Our attraction to him is grown. You see, that's why it's not wrong for Christians to crave signs. We do crave signs, maybe more than we should, we ought not neglect the sel- that we will uh, seldom find God in the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. What we will find him in, though, daily is in the still, small, quiet voice. And look at what the still, small, quiet voice says in answer to Elijah's request. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you will anoint Haziel, king over Aram. You shall also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, uh, of Abel-Meholah. I think he's telling him where to go, because he probably has never heard of Elisha until this point. As prophet in your place. And it shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will put to death. All of this happened, by the way, in 2 Kings. This is a prophecy of what's going to happen to Ahab and Ahab's uh, children and all that. And yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what do you have here? You have one word, not, okay, buck up. God doesn't even, he hardly even answers the request, right? He hardly even deals with, oh, please kill me. No, one word says, no, I'm not going to kill you. I want you to live. In fact, I've got a job. We got to get on with this because we got to go do this. And it's the word go, go. And then there's three anoints. Go, anoint, anoint, anoint. And, oh, by the way, the reason I'm asking you to do this is because of this thing called the 7,000. You see, the 7,000 are what is called throughout the Old Testament and in certain sections of the New Testament, the remnant of God. 
The people who remain, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter how crazy a culture gets, there is always, according to the scripture, there's always others out there. No matter how alone you see. I mean, Elijah said this three times now. I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm alone. And in saying go, and oh, by the way, there's 7,000, he's kind of adding on there. He said, no, you're not alone. You're not. And in fact, what God is promising here, the way it, the remnant is dealt with is, be, is, is that there are always others besides you and me. There will always be others. There will never be a time on the history of the planet when, when uh, Christ has touched a country and a world and a society that there won't remain, even after the aftermath of tremendous upheaval, that there won't remain a remnant of God. That there won't remain others. There won't remain more. That we are a part of something greater than ourselves. You and I may feel alone, and loneliness is at epidemic proportions. We've talked about that. It's at, at, you know, alienation is just getting worse and worse in the society and culture. But God is saying for his people, that's more of a feeling and and an illusion than a truth because I've got more. There's always more. See, this is why the church is such a gift. The community of God is such a gift in times like these, but in every time. It's not like, ah, church is something, I guess. I guess I got to put some of that in my life. Or the lady that told me one time, you know why I come to church? I said, no, why? Well, I'm here every week because you never know when you're going to need God. What? No, it's us together that need each other. You see, the reality is, is the fight is not ours. That doesn't mean we you know, roll over and be like losers. No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is we ought not to take things into our hands that are in God's hands, in his sovereign hands. As the scripture says, the battle's the Lord's. Yeah, we do our jobs, we do what we need to do. Yes, we, we live into that because that's what we are. We're, 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 we're good at, at uh, honoring our commitments and so forth. But the reality is, is that we can't really change and, and get into people's hearts and minds and change what's going on in the world, but God can. And the one thing he asks us to do in this praying your heart out, listening to him, be kind in the meantime to others who don't see it the way you do, what he's telling us is that I want you to, to do battle with your own thoughts and heart. I want you to take every thought captive, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. I want you to take every thought captive and make it bow the knee to Christ, make it obedient to Christ. You do that and with, the power, with the help of the Holy Spirit. You do that, and, and I'm going to change things. I'm going to change people's lives, and I'm going to change the world. You see, that's why this is so significant, because there's only one who has the sovereign power to fulfill his redemptive obsession, to make things new. There's only one that does that, and the way he's chosen to do that is that he is always going to have a remnant in every generation that is ready for him to work through. So I'm saying, I want to be a part of that. I hope you do. No matter what happens in the future, no matter what happens in the cultural future that we live in, you see, here's the principle. Even in troubled times, God will not, never not have a remedy. Double negative. But it's a good double negative, a blessed one. God will never not have that future. You see, as, what he's saying to Elijah here in answer to his, please kill me, I'm alone, is, Elijah, I'm with you and there are others. 
You see, I think that's what he's saying to us. If you feel like you've just been, things have totally been messed up by you on these lockdowns and the, the pandemic, you haven't actually gotten to see your friends in person for months, and I know there's people out there, and there are people out there. I, I hear you, and, and people are getting scared. I mean, we thought, okay, 2020 is over. What, 2021? I know it's kind of freaky and all that. I know that. But God said, no, no, I'm with you, and there are others. Or, or uh, maybe, you know, you're just sick of turning on, the, hearing about the violence and the unrest and, you know, there's nothing you can do about the violence across the country and, and, and D.C. In fact, you don't even want to go downtown Portland. God says, it's okay. I'm with you. And there are others. Or, or you know, you've, you've gone to school and you walk in there in your locker. Somebody's put a n- nasty name on your locker. All because you texted or tweeted or put in your Facebook page something about your faith in Christ. And now somebody's trying to cancel you. God says, that's okay. I'm with you. I got this. And there are others, even in your school, even in your business. Or, or, you know, maybe you're getting that growing sense of, man, all these changes I'm not sure they're good, but I'm starting to feel they're, the, 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 these changes are going to be permanent in my life and, uh, and how we do business and in, in our church or whatever. God says, that's okay. I'm with you, and there are others. Or, or you know, the, the changes that, that, that um, you know, sort of threaten morality. What if we come to a point in this country where, where uh, laws are changed to the extent that you know, you can't even follow the morality that Jesus taught us in your business without paying the consequences, or the church can't. You know, what, what about then? God says, it's okay. I'm with you. And there will always be others. Focus on that. You see, I think that's where this is, what this is trying to tell us, what, what Elijah's story is trying to tell us. And I, I also think it's trying to tell us who we can trust and how we can trust. There's, there's, uh, and because of that, and because this is a related article and a related story, uh, it's not uh, talking about Elijah in any way, shape, or form. But I think it's what we need to hear right now. I'm, instead of my final thoughts today, I'm going to close with some final thoughts from an article I read this week on thegospelcoalition.com. You can look it up, thegospelcoalition.com, and you'll see the title here in a minute. Uh, it's free. So you don't have to subscribe to anything, but you might want to check out this article. The article is called, How to Weather the Worsening Trust Crisis. Do we have a worsening trust crisis about who to trust and what words and what media and what, what uh, you know, this and that to trust? I think, boy, how do we do? Here we go. Here's how he starts the article. The guy is named Brett McCracken. It says, the dec- for decades... In Western culture, especially since the 1960s, we've seen a slow deterioration of trust and a brewing epistemological crisis. Okay, we got to, okay, epistemological just means how do you know anything? How do you know what's really true? What are the, how do, how do our brains work? What, what, how, we, how do we think in such a way that we know that this is true and this is not true? Okay, that's what epistemology is. It's the study of knowledge. Okay, that's all. Epistemological crisis, so that whole thing's in crisis. We've increasingly not known how to know whose authority to trust and where we can look for truth. In recent years, the Internet's toxic buffet of fake news, conspiracy theories, echo chambers, and confirmation bias deepened the crisis. 
But in 2020, it took, uh, an another, it, took it to another level entirely. Recently, re- the recently released 2021 Edelman Trust barometer, which apparently there's an article, uh, somebody who kind of does a, uh, you know, an examination of this every year, the, the Edelman Foundation or something, and they must have just released this this month because first month of 2021, uh, shows that 2020 saw precipitous trust declines. The fascinating report describes, quote, an epidemic of misinformation and widespread mistrust of societal institutions and leaders around the world that has been accelerated by COVID-19. That's the worsening trust crisis. So how are Christians supposed to weather that? Well, we go back to what we learned about prayer, certainly. But how do we pray? What do we, what, what do, how, are we, you know, how can we shape our prayers in ways that we really do hear from God? Well, I'm going to tell you what, what uh, McCracken says in terms of four areas to focus on. He says, focus on the near over the far. The, your, your family here, your community here. Even you know, downtown Portland might be a little too far unless that's where your job is, Right? You focus your prayers there too, and for, it doesn't mean we don't pray for that around, but we focus it on our family and close in and our church and so forth. We focus on that because we, can't, we don't have any control over uh, you know, the things here, let alone you know, beyond outside our reach. Secondly, the time tested over the ephemeral. And in other words, if somebody comes along and says, you know what, we've got to throw out morality, we've got to throw out this truth, that's not true anymore. So Before we throw it out, let's just consider, how long has this been going on? Like if it's been going on for 2,000 years and, uh, you know, five months ago somebody said we ought to get rid of it, that's a pretty good chance that it's not, it's, it's bogus. So focus praying about those things. And focus on the communal over the anonymous. You know what that is. You know, the autonomous self that's so rampant now thinks I can just be a self-controlled unit. No, you can't. We need the community. This is why the church is such a blessing in these days, this moment, this cultural time. And finally, holistic wisdom, not new age wisdom, full, complete, whole gospel wisdom over merely cerebral knowledge. Why? Because you know what? When people say things, for example, like we're following the science, good, follow the science, but don't only follow the science because science is just one department of knowledge. It's only one thing you can trust into a certain level. And so, no, no, I'm not, I'm, I, we need the whole gospel, the whole truth about God. And pray that, God, show me the whole truth. Hold me, show me all your truth. So if you're feeling like the man in the dunk tank at the carnival who never knows when somebody's going to just hit the spot and send you down, and you're, going, you're going through every day going, next! <laughs> Remember Elijah and take your cues from his life that is so indicative of God providing us for us in crazy times. And oh, by the way, don't forget to pray your heart out. In fact, let's do that now, and I want to give you the chance, invitation, God's invitation, I think, to pray your heart out to him right now. If there's something you need to bring up to him, for the next couple of minutes, you just pray your heart out to him, and don't worry about what I'm saying around your prayer. And he'll hear them all. As I pray too, thank you, Lord, that your grace gives us the ability and the grace ourselves to be kind, even in victory. 
Thank you that you invite us to unburden our hearts to you in prayer and that you invite us to listen to you, to hear from you. It's not just a one-way conversation that we're shooting prayers to the sky or something. And thank you for your remnant that's all around us. Open our eyes to that truth, that we're not alone. And whatever comes, Lord, would you help us to rejoice in your peace and the focus that you said we can have on what is near and what you're doing close into us already and not miss the blessings of everyday life that you give us all the time and that we can remember the time-tested truth that our parents and our grandparents and people through the scriptures all the way back have lived by that are true and they're still true. And help us to pray for each other and remember each other in that and to live the completeness of your truth and your gospel. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are here. We thank you for the gift of your people that you've, you've created for yourself for just for moments like this or for any moment we find ourselves living in. And so, Lord, it's out of that that we want to praise you and worship you in the rest of this service, and we give our offerings and tithes to you it's because of that thankfulness that we do it. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.